Yes, Lord, have your way, have your way, have your way, have your way. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Kiri abayishi talabai. Everyone just begin to pray. Lord God. Lord God. <laughs> oh, it's amazing on the other side. Are the gifts of the New Testament church that were in operation from the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, these gifts that we see showing up in Acts chapter 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, and throughout the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Are these gifts still in operation in the church? Are there still miracle workers in the church? Are there still healers in the church? Are there still supernatural languages operating supernaturally now through the power of the Holy Spirit? Is that still happening in the church? Do people still possess the supernatural ability to translate and interpret these supernatural languages through the giftedness of the Holy Spirit. Is that still going on in the church? Is what we see taking place in Pentecostalism and the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement, is that what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, is that what was talked about by and experienced by Peter in Acts chapter 2? Is that what Paul was writing about to the church at Corinth? Is it a good approach for continuationists to argue that because the Bible never says these gifts would end before the return of Christ or would end at some point or would end at the completion of the New Testament revelation. Is it right to argue that therefore these gifts must continue? And what we see going on in the Pentecostal charismatic movement is what went on in the early church. Good morning. Today is, well, good day. Good, it's good morning for me because it happens to be about 5.30 in the morning. Today is February, what is today? February, let me look at my calendar. Well, my calendar is closed. So, yeah, welcome to the last week of February. It doesn't really matter what day it is. My name is Ed Dingus, and you are listening to The Reformed Rant, and I am going to be discussing a um, kerfuffle that I have uh, been engaged in with Robert Gagnon, whose work on this subject is uh, arrives at the opposite conclusions of my understanding of 
the Pentecostal charismatic movement and the gifts of the Spirit, to be specific. He is a continuationist. I am a cessationist. should be noted that Robert Gagnon admits that he has never witnessed these gifts in operation before. Well, let's say it this way. Robert Gagnon admits that he has never spoken in tongues. Uh, I would venture to say that Robert Gagnon would also admit that he has never encountered someone with the gift of healing and that he has never encountered someone with the gifts with the gift of miracles. If I were to ask Dr. Gagnon, have you ever seen or witnessed a bona fide miracle, certified miracle? And, and it, that's not enough. Okay, so that's not the best way to frame the argument. Have you ever had the privilege of, of being around someone who was performing miracles and performing healings? Like not, not a one-time thing where, where God healed someone of, say, something like cancer. No, a miracle worker, like an apostle, like they did in the book of Acts, like the Pentecostals claim exists to this day. Have you ever, have you ever met someone like that? No. You see, I didn't grow up in church, but I did get saved at the age of 14 at the Crawley Creek Church of God, just outside of Chapmanville, West Virginia. I became a licensed minister in the Church of God headquartered in Cleveland, Tennessee, which uh, at least they told me. I really haven't tried to verify this. It seems reasonable, but this is the Church of God headquartered in Cleveland, Tennessee, is touted as being the oldest Pentecostal denomination in the world. It actually started as the Camp Creek Holiness Church right here in North Carolina, over by uh, the Cherokee, over by the North Carolina-Tennessee border um, around 1886, around 20 years before the tongue experience in Los Angeles on Azusa Street uh, the experience was happening in the mountains of north of Western North Carolina, uh, and so I spent several years in uh, the Pentecostal movement, and I can tell I experienced. I spoke in tongues, and it was not uh, supernatural languages, and it was not supernatural. It was delusional. It was a young kid. I was 14 years old when I got saved. It was a young man at the time, young kid, young man at the time, who believed that this uh, emotional uh, experience was actually the same thing that happened in the book of Acts. And as I began to really <clears throat> open my mind and be willing to entertain the idea that maybe this isn't that, uh, it was not until then that I finally started to move away. Now, I was never uh, a charismatic, but um, I do have uh, not just training in this area uh, and not just 40 years of studying this area, but I also have well over a decade of actually being in the movement and experiencing it and going to these churches. And uh, I've been in snake handling churches. I've been in the wild Pentecostal churches that uh, where people just went bonkers uh, in in the service and and for somehow called it, this is the power of God. Well, wow, uh, it wasn't the power of God. It was 
extreme emotionalism, and that's all it was, and that's what it is today. So my view is clearly that what we see going on in the Pentecostal churches today is not that. So I want to deal with a couple of arguments that Robert Gagnon is attempting to make. Now, this is going to be a two-parter, and the reason it's going to be a two-parter is because I'm going to follow this up later in the week uh, with a response to Gagnon's response to Tom Schreiner, because Schreiner wrote an article, Why I Am a Cessationist, uh, that Gagnon um, had not uh, read or either had read years ago. I, I don't know what the story is. Bottom line is, Gagnon, uh, the conversation I had with Robert Gagnon was disturbing enough to him that it's provoking a lot of response from him. So he's really bothered by um, some of the things that uh, myself and others are saying to him. I want to deal with his arguments um, because Robert Gagnon's work in other areas, especially around the political environment uh, and even more importantly around the homosexual movement, are excellent. Um, His work is excellent in that area. In this area, however, not not so much, and to, uh, so and there's a reason why his work in this area is not really that great. I haven't read anyone who has put up an argument for continuationism that doesn't just horribly massacre the the text exegetically and read modern tongues and modern experiences into the text, or come up with all kinds of exegetical gyrations to try and rescue this modern thing. Now, let me say this to you. The the continuationists, most of the solid men, or the, the orthodox men who argue, like Dr. Gagnon, for continuationism, uh, the overwhelming majority of them, they they don't experience these things. They don't experience miracles and healings in terms of miracle workers and healers, the gifts. They don't experience supernatural languages. They don't experience the interpretation of supernatural languages. Uh, they don't even experience prophecies and things of this nature. They're arguing, their argument is primarily in the abstract. It's theoretical. They are claiming that they want to be exegetical purists. Well, if you want to be an exegetical purist, then you cannot make the claim that, or the argument that because the Bible never says these things will cease, then therefore they have not ceased. You, you, You cannot make that argument because it, it doesn't matter if the Bible doesn't clearly come out and say these things will cease after the revelation of Scripture is complete. If you can exegetically demonstrate the purpose for the gifts and exegetically you can properly define what was happening with those gifts, and third, you can demonstrate that the purpose is fulfilled and you can observe that the gifts aren't in operation any longer, 
You have all you need to make the argument that what that this is not that that we see going on in the Pentecostal movement. Mod, the modern Pentecostal movement's claims is not what we see happening or what we read about happening in the New Testament church. That's the way to make this argument. All right, well, buckle up. We're going to spend a little bit of time interacting with Dr. Gagnon's comments. And I was going to say earlier, the reason it's going to be a two-parter is because I just opened Facebook this morning and Dr. Gagnon, uh, apparently last evening, oh, today's February 23rd. There you go. Last evening, Dr. Gagnon uh, put up a post responding to Tom Schreiner's article and I had no idea. So I'm going to deal with some things that Dr. Gagnon has said to me in response to my claims uh, and my interactions with him. And then I'll come back later in the week once I've had a chance to read Dr. Gagnon's uh, response to Schreiner's article, and I'll interact with that. I don't know that that will be that much. I don't know if that'll be a shorter rant or not. But anyhow, let's go ahead and... uh, Get on with it. Oh, look down yonder, Gabriel. Put your feet on the land and see. Gabriel, don't you blow your trumpet until you hear from me. Oh, go down yonder river. And what do you think I see? Well, I see a band of angels and they're coming after me. No, there ain't no I'm going to go to Acts chapter 2, which helps us understand what the New Testament experience was and what the Pentecostal charismatic movement absolutely positively is not. Acts chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, after this incident took place, after the Holy Spirit filled the 120 in the upper room and they began speaking in other languages, supernaturally, as the Spirit of God enabled them. Down in verses 7 and 8, it says the people, the crowd, came together and they were bewildered. Verse 6. Because each one of them were hearing, was hearing them, speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And the why there is, why is this happening? And then how? How is it that each hear them in our own language to which we were born? So it is crystal clear. It could not be more clear that the phenomenon that we see in Acts chapter 2 with the tongue speaking, same word used in Corinthians, this this phenomenon is not mentioned very often in the New Testament. So we have to ask the question, if 
What what was speaking in tongues as our English translations translated? And according to Luke in Acts chapter 2, this was the ability to speak supernaturally, the uh, the supernatural ability to speak in another language. Now, many, many people, and myself included, observe that this seems to be, number one, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. God is doing a new thing. The new covenant has been ushered in, and this is the sign that God is now pouring his spirit out on all flesh. If you do not see Acts chapter 2 as a sign, a greater sign, a a a higher level sign that God is doing something new in the earth. If instead you get down into the experiential elements of this and start saying, this is for me too, you're going to lose this completely. That's a critical point. That's a a critical interpretive point here to, to look down on this and ask, what's happening? This is the revelation of God in scripture. Stop reading me into the text. What's happening? What's God doing? Why is this in the text of Scripture? Joel 2.28. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Acts chapter 2, the Messiah has come. The work of the Messiah has been complete. And the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, is sending the Holy Spirit. The new covenant has arrived. And this is a reversal of sorts of what we see happen at Babel. God divided men. God confused men with all these languages. Now, for those who are called by the Father and placed in the Son, we have the reversal. And it is interesting that languages uh, are used in both of those events. But you can see it. It's, e- it's really easy to see, and it's kind of neat. So tongues in Acts chapter 2 are indisputably languages, human languages. Now, is there another type of tongue? There is nothing in the New Testament that says there's another type of tongue. This is the only tongue that we see mentioned in the New Testament. And when we get the details, and we only get them here, when, when, the, when the writers of the New Testament are writing about tongues, Luke gives us some details. As Luke was prone and inclined to do. Everyone knows that about Luke. When Luke gives us the details... He explains that these are languages. They're languages. Is there another type of tongue? There is no exegetical evidence to suggest that anyone in the New Testament had a different kind of tongue that was spoken right here. None. And it would be a problem if if that were the case because... This is the sign that you 
have been brought into the new covenant. This is the sign that God is doing a new thing. This is the sign. This is the sign given to the apostles who who are the authoritative messengers of the new covenant message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will write what has been revealed to them in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that which the Holy Spirit reveals to them. Their experience is the authentic experience of being placed in the new covenant. If there is another kind of experience different from what the apostles experienced, we have a problem. It's not the same experience. These are the exemplars. You want their experience. If you want to be in their covenant, you want their experience. Okay. Don't read anything into what I just said. My point is going to be that the experience that we see in modern Pentecostals does not resemble what happened in Acts chapter 2 in any way, shape, or form. And if you really want to compare the claim of Pentecostals that this is the same thing the apostles experienced with what the apostles experienced, then this is where you have to come. This is where the comparison has to take place. Now, some people are going to argue this differently. I don't. I argue it this way. Because from my perspective, this is ironclad. There is no getting around this. If you want to measure my experience and my claim that what I'm experiencing is what the apostles experienced, what the New Testament church experienced, then the best place for me to go is the most detailed explanation of what the apostles experienced and compare it to what I'm experiencing. And ask the question, is this the same thing? Ladies and gentlemen, when I was a Church of God pastor and I was in the Pentecostal movement, that's what I did. I did exactly that. And I came to this conclusion that it was not the same experience. I wasn't speaking in a language. Now, a little bit about that. Probably should have pulled off the book. I'll do that in part two. There's a really good work out there, on a, ling- a linguistic study conducted by scientists, linguists, um, of those people who are in the Pentecostal movement and claim to be speaking in supernatural languages. They say these, these are languages. Many Pentecostals are now saying it's not uh, a human language. And this is Dr. Gagnon. Dr. Gagnon employs this rescue device when in the argument that I've, or the disagreement he and I have had. It's an argument per se, the disagreement that we're having. And these linguists have studied Pentecostals who speak English, Chinese, Russian, French, etc. Languages around the world. And they have concluded that 
in every single case, all of these Pentecostals are speaking in broken, unintelligible syllables of their native language. English speakers are speaking in the unintelligible, broken syllables of English. French speakers the same, Russian speakers the same, Chinese speakers the same. These are not, only not, human languages. They're not languages of any kind, period. Some people claim they're angelic languages. They're not any kind of language. They can be verified as syllables within the la native language of which these people are speaking by linguists. There's no wow. There's no what a miracle. There's nothing impressive here. Anyone can do it. Don't you think that's a problem? Given what we see in Acts chapter 2. If you don't think that's a problem, something's wrong with your thinking. You really should look at this and think that's a problem. Don't bury your head in the sand and say it's not true. And it's just what a, the typical Pentecostal, uh, who, who is typically, yeah, the typical Pentecostal is going to bury their head in the sand or the charismatic. And they're going to tell you that this is nothing but a tax of Satan on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what they're going to tell you. Now, I'm going to add this for people like Dr. Gag Gagnon's benefit. These people, the overwhelming majority of Pentecostals and Charismatics, claim that unless you have this gibberish experience, you are not baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. You get saved, and then later you have another blessing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I was a Church of God pastor, we had three experiences, three blessings. You got saved, you got sanctified, then you got filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, for the life of me, I could not find anyone to help me understand what the difference was between being saved and being sanctified. And I asked all kinds of questions. Even as a young kid, I was 16, 17 years old, I'm asking questions like, okay, help me understand something. You get saved? If you die before you get sanctified, do you go to heaven? You're saved, but you go to hell? No, no, no. Well, okay, wait a minute. You're not sanctified, but you go to heaven? How, how does a person who has not been sanctified get into heaven? What happens if you're saved but not sanctified? And I could never get anyone to really explain that to me. And I could never get anyone to, it, because it's an experience. It's not, um, it's not progressive. It's an experience. It, just, it happens to you. You get it's a it's a blessing that it's an event like being filled with the Holy Spirit in their world and like getting saved. It's something that happens to you at a point in time. I never could get my head around around it. I believed it, um, but I, just like them, I couldn't figure out how it worked. So I blindly, yeah, blindly accepted it. 
These people believe that you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, that you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit unless you're speaking gibberish. This is a real issue. Dr. Gagnon, um, in the discussions I've had with him on this on this argument, and the, this this all started because I noticed that Dr. Gagnon was speaking speaking at a conference in Chicago, and I I have a couple of Dr. Gagnon's books on homosexuality, and they're fabulous, and I would encourage you to to purchase those books because they are fabulous. And at least Dr. Gagnon is not the heretic that Michael Brown is because Michael Brown is a charismatic and Michael Brown practices these things and Michael Brown has not met a heretic in the charismatic movement that he won't defend. The worst of the worst, Michael Brown defends. And not only that, his beliefs are heretical. They're blasphemous when you measure them against Scripture. Dr. Gagnon, not so much. Dr. Gagnon is in the same camp as someone like a Wayne Grudem. They are uh, continuationists on paper only. Okay? So they're paper continuationists. They're not actual continuationists because Dr. Gagnon will tell you he's never spoken in tongues. I think he would also tell you, as I said earlier, he's never met a, a faith healer or a miracle worker. And he's never watched anyone line up a bunch of people who are blind and deaf and dead and truly, truly unable to walk, paralyzed from waist down, and and witnessed anyone performing miracles. And neither, neither has any other Pentecostal or charismatic on the planet. No one has ever witnessed that. No one. Now look, you're going to have people come out of the woodworks and say, I saw someone get healed. We don't say God doesn't heal. No one's making that argument. So stop it. That's not our argument. You know, I saw a miracle. We don't say God doesn't work miracles anymore. No one argues that. So stop it. And then you're going you're gonna to have people come out and say, some of them well-intentioned, and some of them trying desperately to salvage Pentecostalism. And they're going to say, well, I know someone who knew someone who knew someone whose prayer language was a real language. Hmm. Oddly enough, you never talk to the person themselves. Like, you never have direct testimony. I speak in tongues, and it's a real language. Awesome. Now we have, now we have this opportunity to have a true observation of whether or not that claim, which is an empirical claim, is true. You see, the claim that I'm speaking in the languages of the New Testament, the claim that my tongues that I'm speaking in are identical to the tongues in Acts chapter 2, is not an exegetical claim, ladies and gentlemen. That's not an exegetical claim, any more than the claim that Benny Hinn's raising people from the dead. That isn't an exegetical claim. So the argument is an exegetical. It's empirical. If you're going to stand up and claim 
that you are doing the same thing the apostles in Acts chapter 2 were doing. Okay, exegetically, we know they were speaking in human languages, supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if your claim is you were doing what they were doing, then that's your claim as well. And just like their languages were verifiable and were verified to actually be languages, we can verify yours too. What do you think would have happened if these apostles, the 120 people in the upper room, were doing what modern Pentecostals do? Do you think these people in Jerusalem from these these Jews who who lived in other parts of the world who'd come together to celebrate Pentecost, do you think they would have heard this gibberish and thought, wow, this is amazing? No, they would not have thought that at all. It would have been laughable. And rightfully so. But for some reason, we have emptied our brains in modern-day American culture, and human beings around the globe have emptied their brains for the most part, except for maybe the Chinese. But this stuff is in China as well. So I guess to an extent they have too. Look, pretty simple. These were languages. First Corinthians 13. So Dr. Gagnon and I go back and forth on... First uh, Corinthians 13, and I heard someone else make this argument uh, not so long ago that these were angelic languages. So in First Corinthians chapter 13, the first thing that you have to look out look at is the discourse flow of First Corinthians 13, and ask the question: Was the apostle doing? What's his focus? What is he really doing? Is he making an argument that the spiritual gifts that you see witnessing witnessed in the church at Corinth are going to continue until the very end? Is that what he's doing? And I, I've got to tell you that no exegete worth his salt is going to say, yeah, that's the thrust of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 13, because it isn't. And everyone knows that. Okay. What some Pentecostals see here is an, is an opportunity to claim that the spiritual gifts are going to continue until Christ comes. And that's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is focused on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, Dr. Gagnon has said 1 Corinthians 13, 1, means that the, the languages in Corinth were angelic languages. That's his claim, that they were speaking in angelic languages, even though there is no record of anyone in the New Testament speaking in angelic languages. And we're not even convinced, based on this structure, that, that the angels speak in a language different from what we do. Now, it's fine if they do. They might. But I could never look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 1 and conclude dogmatically that angels speak a different language than humans. Why? Well, because of the construction. This is a hypo. There's a couple things going on here. There's two types of, of uh, literary uh, issues going on here that you have to be aware of. One of them is hy the hypothetical. 
right? The the Greek here, the, the Greek is is right is well translated into English. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, not though, I think the King James Version might say, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, which might lead some people to believe that Paul was speaking in angelic tongues. But that's not actually what Paul wrote. Paul used the conditional. Eon is the Greek uh, word that's used here and translated into the English, if. If I might speak. Right? That's what's going on here. That word lalo is a present active subjunctive because subjunctives are used with an. It's a conditional. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have what? Love. It's just a bunch of noise. It's nothing. It's not impressive at all. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so that I could remove mountains but do not have love, I'm not, nothing. Now, okay, two things. It is hypothetical coupled with hyperbole. Did Paul, if you're going to say, oh, look, Paul's claiming to, that his language is here where the, where the languages of angels well, then you're also going to have to say, and this also means that Paul had the gift of prophecy, which he did. He knew all mysteries, that there was no mystery that Paul didn't know, and that he had all knowledge. Same construction. But we know that Paul didn't have all knowledge. Why? Because verse 12 of this very same chapter says, Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. In other words, I don't know fully. So if you go over to verse 2, and you look at verse 12 and verse 2 together, and you compare the two, you're like, oh, there's a contradiction here, because Paul claims that he has all knowledge in verse 2, and then in verse 12, he admits that he does not have all knowledge. So that is a, that is not an apparent contradiction, that is an obvious contradiction. Nowhere in this chapter, or nowhere in chapter 12, or chapter 14, or chapter 13, or nowhere in the book of Acts, we don't see anyone in the New Testament. There is no evidence that suggests that any human being in the New Testament spoke in angelic languages. None. Now, Dr. Gagnon also followed this up by claiming that in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says that uh, he that speaks in an unknown tongue is speaking to God because God's the only one who understands him. No man understands him. Well, the Pentecostal is going to say no man on the planet understand him, understands him, and that is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying no one on earth understand him, understands that the, a person who speaks in tongues, because over in Acts chapter 2, we saw people speaking in tongues, and we saw men understand them. So we have another contradiction between Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
Well, what's the answer? Well, the answer is that the, n- no man in the church, nobody in the church understands this person who's speaking in this language that is a human language. No one understands it. Why would you do that? Well, you're full of pride. You're showing off your gift, right? Now, John MacArthur thinks that the pagan tongues had entered here. I don't have any reason to conclude that that's necessarily the case, although I'm, I'm sympathetic to MacArthur's argument. I personally don't make that argument. I make the argument very simply that the languages in Corinth, that the Corinthian church was full of themselves because of the spiritual gifts that they had. They had been very gifted. And in some cases, it was going to some of their heads and they were misusing those gifts. And they were allowing their pride to get the best of them. And Paul was correcting them. That simple. Really, truly, that simple. So there's no reason to conclude that there is a tongue that can be spoken in that no human being on the earth would ever understand it. And there's, there's lots of reasons to think that. And there's lots of problems with trying to defend modern tongues from a rational standpoint. Um, God is a rational God, and he, he's not irrational. And uh, so, you know, to speak in unintelligible broken syllables of your native language and claim that it's a miracle from God or to claim that it is the supernatural miracle that happened in Acts chapter 2 can do nothing but denigrate what happened in Acts chapter 2. It is tragic for us to sit by and allow Pentecostals to do this to the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were authentically expressed in the New Testament that were incredible, amazing displays of the power of God. And what you see in the Pentecostal churches is not an amazing display of anything except buffoonery. So that the conditional coupled with the hypothetical, Dr. Dr. Gagner tried to say that, that no man is no man, and he tried to to get away with this. What, what, what did he, where did he, 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 he attempted, he attempted to say, let me see if I can find it really quick. All right, there it is. I found it. Second Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse four, Dr. Gagnon employs this verse where Paul says he was called up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Dr. Gagnon tried to say that those that was an unintelligible language that that Paul uh, had no way of expressing it, which is utterly ridiculous. Even if it were a, an angelic language, let's pretend that it was. It's obviously clear that Paul understood what was being said, which means that he could have transferred that language into a human vernacular that other people could have understood which is not what's going on with modern tongues. We see this take place with Daniel, where Daniel is told. He heard heard words that he was not allowed to utter, and that's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, that he heard things that he was not permitted. He was not allowed to share. Really, really very simple. And I pointed this out to Dr. Gagnon that the Greek words used there clearly set the context to be words that were not permitted to be 
repeated. And we see this in Daniel chapter 12, verses 4, verse 9, Daniel chapter 8, verse 26. And this is a, an attempt on a really good scholar to rescue his argument for continuationism. Now, not only this, guys, and I'm going to come, I'm going to wrap this up and come back to this in part two, and gosh, I may even do a, a part three. This is just one of those things that we're going to have to continue to push back on, all right? These Pentecostals, right, so the tongues are the same everywhere you go. There are modalists who speak in tongues. Now, those of us who are Orthodox, we don't think modalists are saved, but they speak in tongues. There are oneness Pentecostals all over the world who speak in tongues. There are prosperity gospel people preaching a gospel that we think is a pernicious, wicked, false gospel speaking in the same tongues that they claim were from Acts chapter 2. Now, if you're going to accept the idea that the more traditional Pentecostal, the more conservative Pentecostal, who isn't a charismatic, who isn't a modalist, have the genuine gift, and it sounds identical to the modalist and to the charismatic, how are you going to distinguish between what's real and what isn't real? What's true and what's false? Seriously. You have people like T.D. Jakes, who was a modalist, speaking in tongues, who was a heretic. I mean, not only that, we can examine this as well and probably will, and then I'm going to stop. The theological error and heresy, I should say errors and heresies that exist in the Pentecostal charismatic churches are incredibly high, numerous. There are lots of them, and they range from simple-minded mistakes not good thinking to absolutely outrageous, absurd, pernicious teachings devised to manipulate people out of their money and all sorts of other things. All right, I'm going to stomp there. Hopefully you got something out of this rant. Uh, I respect Robert Gagnon. Uh, I know he doesn't practice the gibberish speaking. Um, he's not, he's a continuationist on paper only, which most of these good guys that I strongly disagree with and think that their position is very troubling and hurtful in many cases to the body of Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to judge their salvation. I, I accept their profession of faith. I just think they're terribly, terribly confused on this argument and are taking a wrong approach. I think they have good intentions because they want to make the argument exegetical, and I think that's where we start with this. It can't just be exegetical. These are not exegetical claims discoupled from or decoupled from uh, observation and reality, right? They're bo it's both. So you have to understand what was going on then, observe what's going on now, and ask the question, is this that? And my answer is, it is not. Thank you for listening to the Reform rant. Look for another episode later this week, a follow-up episode on this one. Uh, hopefully it'll be a little bit 
shorter. If you have any comments, questions that you would like to leave, you can do it if you're listening to the Rant in the Anchor app. You can go over to Reformed Reasons and leave a comment, and you can go to a couple of Facebook pages that uh, we're in uh, uh, that are both Reformation Charlotte. Uh, Lots of folks in there, lots of good conversation um, that take place. Iron sharpens iron, uh, so feel free to jump in and and join those groups and uh, have some fellowship and uh, hopefully be encouraged. Stay in the fight, keep the faith, continue to lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ, and be the light that God has called you to be. God bless.